you know a spot. But not just a spot. The spot. Actually, with the 2023 Nissan Frontier, you know a bunch of them. But the key to these great spots? Being able to reach them in the first place. Your spot is out there. Find your Frontier in the 2023 Nissan Frontier with standard 310 horsepower, advanced tech, and 281 pound-feet of torque. AT&T Connects and Ode to Podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work. In traffic, so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to Hello Somebody, a production of the Black Effect Network on iHeartMedia. Before we begin, I want to give some thanks to our team. Thank you, Grace and Co. for our graphics, Pepper Chambers for writing, Angelo Greco and Anna Mesa for managing our social media, Tiffany Hale for everything, Erica England for Patreon support, and our production team at Large Media. That's L-A-R-J-Media.com. Also, let me tell you what we have going on over at Patreon. Patreon is like our family where you can become a member and get access to every episode commercial-free, plus videos of inspiration from yours truly, merchandise deals, and a lot more. Head over to patreon.com forward slash hello somebody and become a member today. All proceeds from Patreon go to support the production of this podcast. Dr. Deborah Fur Holden is a John Hopkins trained epidemiologist, health equity researcher, and public health activist. She has published more than 100 peer reviewed publications in some of the nation's leading journals, including a recent seminal publication in Addiction, calling out racial inequity in response to the opioid crisis. Recent media includes an on air interview on MSNBC Live with Stephanie Rue, expert input and quotes on COVID equity in USA Today, Politico, and the New York Times. She is actively working with former Ohio State Senator and congressional candidate Nina Turner. That's me! The doc is actively working with me. (laughs) Dr. Holden is actively working with me on an open letter to the Biden-Harris administration to mandate equity in COVID vaccine distribution and administration. Hello. Hey, Doc, how you doing? (laughs) 
Dr. Fur Holden, it's such a pleasure to have you on Hello Somebody. And uh, you and I have been together many, many times with our dear sister, Santita Jackson. And uh, she's very good at bringing good people together. And I'm so glad that she brought us together. And I know she would be leaping for joy to know that you are on Hello Somebody right now. So, Doc, you know, COVID, uh, we are at the time of us having this conversation, over 500,000 people died dead in the United States of America. We have uh, we have the vaccine is available and states are trying and local governments are trying to figure out how they get the vaccine to the greatest number of people. And we also have, though, with that, a crisis of misunderstanding or deliberately not understanding about how, in, in fact, you get the, the virus or the vaccine out to the communities that are the most vulnerable. And you talk about this a lot. And so in your mandate equality or equity, excuse me, mandate equity project, you, you laid in there. So I just want to read a few excerpts from this and uh, get you to respond. What motivated you to write this and where do you think government should go from here in servicing the most vulnerable people. Laws without enforcement are akin to gums without teeth. If equity matters, it should be mandated by law and enforced. That's a that's a pretty bold statement, Doc. You want to explain to us what you meant by that or what you mean by that? Yeah, sure. So I, I you remember when we were kids and teenagers and you started getting those going out privileges? Yeah. And 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 I had a curfew and I'm sure you did too. I did. And guess what happened? The first time that I broke curfew and nothing happened, guess what I did the following week? I came in even just a little bit later. Okay? So we had the rules in my house and I knew what those rules were. But if there was no enforcement of those rules, there was no incentive for me to abide by those rules. So I continued to come in a little bit later and later every night. Until finally one day I came in about an hour and a half past curfew and my mom was there waiting and I did not go out for the next three months. And guess what I did after that? I got my tail in the house on time. If equity really matters, see, laws are about having things that are both written and enforceable. Very different from practices, which is just how we do things. Very different from procedures, which is sort of a, a, a recipe for how to do things. Policies are supposed to be written and they're supposed to be enforceable. And we have no real policy around equity and COVID vaccine distribution or administration. So I'm not at all surprised it's going the way it's going. Do you think that is because people, the people who are in charge with writing those policies have a misunderstanding about the impact of policy on execution or don't necessarily care or a little of both or none of the above? I will say this. I think we've got some goodwill uh, in our nation. We've got some goodwill, but goodwill is not enough. If you shoot me by accident, I'm still shot. OK, that. Yeah. that like I'm no less shot. The impact is real. So my thing is, if there is truly goodwill, there is a legislative way. Our federal tax dollars paid for what's in those vials and the federal government gave that vaccine to states. They're doing direct distribution to big box stores and pharmacies with no conditions attached. They just on a wink and a handshake said, do your very best to get it to people fairly and equitably. 
Why would people honor that? There's no incentive. There's no skin in the game. It's not like if people don't do that, there's a consequence. See, I started honoring curfew because if I didn't, then I wouldn't be able to go out for three months. If people were told, if you do not demonstrate that you can get this injected into people's arms in a way that mirrors your service population, you either won't get vaccine or you'll get less vaccine. People would figure it out, but they have no skin in the game. So what we've done instead is we're trying to program our way out of it. And my problem is this. It's a lot of community push. You know, thanks to you, I get to hear and sit on this New York City task force. I'm on the Michigan task force that Governor um, Whitmer put together, and we have a local task force. It's the exact same conversation in all three places. A lot of really smart, brilliant, hardworking people pushing a boulder uphill, trying to get this vaccine injected into people's arms fairly and equitably. And we have no governmental pool. The people who hold the cards in stage one were the hospitals. Why? Because they were the one who had the storage capabilities. They're the academic medical centers. They already had the freezers. They already had that. And you know what they did? They vaccinated board members, former board members, relatives, called their friends, called the donors. And all of these people jumped the line, not realizing they were, in essence, shoving somebody's 80-year-old grandmother to the side to jump to the front of the line. And we've done something to me that's criminal which is that we've pointed to fictitious reasons to explain away the inequity. And we've said it's hesitancy. It's a hesitancy problem. It's Tuskegee. African-Americans don't want the COVID vaccine because of Tuskegee. And that is just simply a lie. Is hesitancy not a, a real thing in the Black community? I will say hesitancy is well-earned and, and, and skepticism is well-earned in the Black community. So do we have some people who are either hesitant or reluctant or even better? Most people are not an, a flat-out no. They're a no for now. You know, we made a lot of mistakes. We called this yeah. thing Operation Warp Speed. Where were the health communications people when these so-called goodwill people were coming up with this whole system? You say Warp Speed, you know what people hear? They hear corner cutting, skip steps, sloppy, quick and dirty. Who wants something that was done at warp speed injected into their arm? They should have called it something like Operation Saving Lives, Operation We Got You, Operation (laughs) Hello Somebody. You know what I mean? But to call it Operation Warp Speed, this ain't Star Trek. I don't want nothing that's getting injected in my body developed and rolled out with warp speed. Scotty, beam me up. Beam me up. Like, no. Yeah. No, Doc, you're definitely right about that. You know, because even in our conversations and and certainly the task force, man, you you serve on almost all of them. But the task force that we're on together in New York, we hear a lot of our colleagues talking about what people are talking about in the community, which is... Yeah, they cut corners or if the, it's the black community looking side eye. Why y'all want us to get this first? Something must not be right about it because you you did it so quickly. It can't be right. And the reason why you all be in the system wants us first because we're the test. We're but the watch test this. Here's what I think is funny because black people are very smart. Yes, we we've are. survived impossible circumstances. We, yes, we have. We know how to survive. So there was this conversation and all this so-called goodwill and them saying, we want you at the front of the line. But what you've got in cities all across the country is you've got black and brown people stuck in the maze and the bottleneck of the wait list. 
Some people can't even figure out how to get on the wait list. So that this notion that they wanted us to get it turned out to not be true anyway, because it went to community. And we're hearing stories all over the country of people, quote unquote, going to the ghetto to get their vaccine. People think that's funny. They think it's funny that they know somebody or they got a phone call, et cetera, and they're going into communities that they never go into, that they never patronize, that they never spend their money in, that they never invest in, and they're getting vaccine, and then they're riding back in their Range Rovers to wherever they came from, laughing about their experience in an underserved community getting a vaccine. So to me, that's the real lie, was that there was some priority for African-Americans or other minority groups to get this vaccine and to be a priority. If we were truly a priority, where is the legislation that maps onto that? The legislation and the things that have come out of the White House have spoken to task forces. They have spoken to core values. They've spoken to intentions. That's not enough. Our natural drift is to inequity, a system that was designed to keep certain people in power and privilege and keep others in in a subordinate position. This system is working exactly as it was designed to work. Something extraordinary would have to happen for it to be some other way. So if African-Americans, in fact, or Hispanic and Latinx or people with disabilities, whatever the group is, are truly a priority, where is the law that says that and that requires anybody who takes receipt of the vaccine to make sure that they are vaccinating those people at the rate in which they're reflected in the population of eligibles and in the service community? So your point about our natural drift being towards inequity And basically you're saying we need the law, we need the law to correct that natural drift. Is the recommendation for policymakers, especially on the federal level of government, since it is our federal tax dollars that pay for the vaccine in the first place, to be very prescriptive, to use a term in your your, uh, field, to be very prescriptive about the who, what, when, where, how, totally in law. And Doc, so that's one question. The other one is, you know how long it takes them to pass laws as it is right now. All right, so there we were, cruising through the new open-air zoo, when I realized that the park was closing in like 15 minutes. Luckily, we were in my Nissan Rogue. With its powerful DC turbo engine, well, we had time to see all the animals. Whoa! (laughs) And outrun a few! Drive the Nissan Rogue. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the driving to work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more.
They don't have to prescribe the how, okay. but they should mandate the what. They should mandate the what. So there was a point when we didn't have seatbelts in cars. Some sure. cars had them, some cars didn't. Most cars didn't have them in the back seat. I have a picture of my mom bringing me home from the hospital. Do you know how my mom brought me home from the hospital in 1974? She was holding me in her arms. You can't even take a baby out of the hospital today if the baby is not in a car seat. True. And somebody will walk you out and make sure that that car seat is installed and is installed properly. We said seat belt saves save lives. And we said everybody has to wear a seat belt. All cars didn't even have them at the time. But guess what car manufacturers did? They figured no it out. Yeah. They figured it out. So it, we're, we're in a crisis. And they're saying this vaccine is going to save lives. How is it that this dose of hope is being inequitably provided to people then? It's not fair. And we don't have to overly prescribe how they can do it. But the fact that they must do it, that should be law. The same way you have to wear a seatbelt, you have to get this vaccine to people fairly and equitably. And people can do it. They've kicked the can down the road and cried, we don't have the data. But let me tell you, in Michigan, and Michigan is, I, I am not picking on my state. Lord knows we've made tremendous stride in dealing with um, inequity in COVID cases and COVID deaths. We closed mm -hmm. the racial disparities gap for African-Americans. And we're the only state that I know of that has done that and yes. has sustained that progress. So when you, when I look at um, what we have in Michigan, our first two and a half million doses of vaccine, 44% of the data were missing race and 70% of the data were missing ethnicity. No data. 2.5 million doses of vaccine given out. There is zero missing data on the age category of the person who received the vaccine. Less than one-tenth of 1% 1 of those 2.5 million doses were missing gender. So clearly, we have the capacity to collect demographic data on everybody who gets the vaccine. Sure. The omission of race and ethnicity from that data collection system. And it's called Micker. And people say, well, Micker doesn't have a field for race. Well, add one. A programmer, a coder could do that in somewhere between eight and 13 seconds. Add one more variable. So my question is, you asked about goodwill. I don't know. I'm not here to judge people's intentions. All I know is without a requirement that that data be collected and that people demonstrate in reality, that they can get it to people fairly and equitably, nothing will change. And kicking the can down the road of we don't have the data is completely unacceptable. So the, the consequence, though, for, you know, if the world is as you just laid it out, Doc, the consequence to a state for not having that kind of data, for not ensuring that it is that the vaccine is distributed in an equitable way. The federal government, I mean, what's the, we're talking about a carrot and a stick. So the, the, the stick can't be, we're not going to give you any more vaccine, could it? Because we're in a crisis. Maybe it's uh, withholding other funds for other things, but not certainly not the vaccine. Well, if we want to solve national inequity, we maybe need to sweeten the pot for people who are up for and doing the work to actually get it to people equitably. 
I've heard this this conversation come right out of Biden's task force. As long as people are getting it, what's the, you know, like sort of what's the big deal? So my sure. thing is we should then be prioritizing pharmacies, big box stores, states, health departments who can demonstrate and are demonstrating that they can get it to people equitably. In my county alone, we have a 70,000 person wait list. 20% of the people in my county are African-American. I live in the city of Flint, so there it the city itself is more African-American. It's majority African-American. But if you look across the whole county, we're just about 20% of the population. More than 20% of those 70,000 on that wait list are African-American. Why are they underrepresented in the vaccination population? Sure. People would figure it out. They need, And so I don't want to prescribe it, but just in case people said, well, we don't know how. I gave them some how. But I'm not asking for our legislators to mandate the how. I'm asking them to mandate the what. And I'm asking them to attach this resource that our tax dollars paid for to put conditions on it that if you want the resource, you've got to, one, collect the data, and you've got to, two, demonstrate that you can get it to people fairly and equitably. If not, what is the message that we're sending to people? I mean, really, then the question of, is there really goodwill? I don't need goodwill. It would be the equivalent of President Biden showing up in my neighborhood for community cleanup. I don't need you to come and help clean up my community. I need you to operate at your highest level, your highest calling, and do the thing that we elected you to do. I need you to operate and stand in your highest purpose. Same thing with all of our elected officials. So I don't, you know, them coming around in the dog and pony show and all the visits. No, they all need to be grappling in some chamber somewhere with their sleeves rolled up, fighting about what the consequence is going to be if people don't do it. And let me tell you the other thing that I know for a fact. States, counties, pharmacies, they would develop communities of practice and they would figure it out. You have some places that are doing better than others with equity in administration. They would then become, people would be banging down their doors. How'd you do it? For they the would practices. figure, they would figure it out. So how do we, <clears throat> so we're in this situation. It doesn't have to stay this way. I've been reading articles that we're definitely not keeping up with the number of vaccines that need to happen on a daily basis a weekly basis, a monthly basis to get us to herd immunity, which we need 73 to 75% of people in all groups, racial, ethnic groups, to take the vaccine to that level so we can get to herd immunity. So, Doc, I mean, how, how do we get there? I mean, what, what the not just the, the best practices, but because you, you use your state of Michigan as one example, but really, I mean, how do we get there between the vaccine, not people not taking it at the levels that we need to have them take it to get to herd immunity, one. Then number two, we got to deal with the fact that the vaccine is not being distributed in an equitable way. And then three, we still have, even though that might not be the primary cause, but we still have the hesitancy across the board, but it's especially the African-American community, but to a point that you made about who people are just not trusting of the warp warp speed nature of of the vaccine of the vaccine itself so what between those three things what does dr deborah fur holden say you're in a room with these people who write the policies you're right there with congress in the room with them not grandstanding not them on on the on in, on the floor but in a room sure. we need to get this done 
what are what are your recommendations to get this done and, and get the change that we need to see? So if you look at the, the, the protocol that was rolled out and the eligibility categories, they were in the right frame of mind when those were created. Those eligibility categories prioritized people who were at highest risk for exposure and at highest risk for a bad outcome. That was smart thinking, right? Because the people who are at high risk of exposure become vectors. You work in a hospital setting, you work around COVID positive patients, you work in healthcare, you are more likely to become exposed. That doesn't change the fact that you have to go grocery shopping, you have to come back home, you have to go to your community, you might go to the nail salon or you know whatever. So getting the people who are at highest risk for exposure vaccinated was a smart move. And then because like we should not operate in the system where there's a hierarchy on the value of human life. And I've heard people say, oh, but the death rate's only 3%. Like, what's the big whoop? Yeah, but if you look within age categories and if you look by um, people's existing health status, the death rate is much higher for people who are older, for people who already have compromised immune systems or, or other health conditions. So then prioritizing those people made good sense. So it's about hitting the people who are most at risk for exposure or most at risk for a bad outcome. So the, the way we categorize people and the way we determine these eligibility categories was great. The problem again is there was no requirement that those people even be the beneficiaries of the initial doses of vaccine. Yes. And then if you also think about people who are at high exposure risk, why weren't prisoners included in people who are living in long-term facilities? True that. Again, goes back to our our society is working as it was designed. We have a hierarchy on the value of human life. And we have said the value of a life of a person who's incarcerated is lower on the pole than the value of somebody who's out in the community. And they many times have no ability to physically distance. They definitely can't socially distance. In a bunch of prisons, they don't even provide you soap. You have to buy your own soap. We couldn't even get prisoners PPE. They're on top of each other in overcrowded conditions with nowhere to go. And we didn't provide them with PPE. We didn't prioritize them in the vaccine. So again, let's just assume and give people the benefit of the doubt and say they had goodwill. Goodwill is not enough. True. I mean, it's hard for me to say that that's goodwill. I mean, there are a a group of forgotten people and our people who are incarcerated are among that group. So let's let's look even further. Right. Because you said how. So the first thing is the thinking around those eligibility categories was great. But it's almost like think back to affirmative action. Supposedly, affirmative action was going to level the playing field. The primary beneficiaries of affirmative action were middle class white women. It did not really have the profound impact that it was supposed to have on black and brown people and people who've been historically oppressed and people who were supposed to have the playing field leveled for them with education and employment and and, and, uh, housing and all of those other things. Because it didn't have the kind of enforcement behind it and it didn't have metrics. There was no, this is what we're trying to get to and this is what has to get demonstrated. It was what we're doing right now, a set of core values, some task forces, some um, some good ideas, some some well-informed conversations, but there was no teeth behind those laws. 
And so it went how it went. Our natural drift to inequity. And whoever is highest up on the pole will automatically be the beneficiary of the resource. That's how that works. So we go back to the multiple layers improve success. You've probably seen it. This really great Swiss cheese model, which basically says we've got all of these different layers, right, that are a part of our pandemic response. No one layer is perfect, right? It's like Swiss cheese. It's got holes in it. But if you start to build these layers, all of these imperfect layers, and you stack them up, eventually what you have is a wall of protection because the holes don't go all the way through. So the vaccine is not perfect. It's not the panacea. It's not going to solve the whole problem. But it is an important layer of protection. So was payroll protection. And look how many African-American and women-owned businesses have gone under during COVID and simply couldn't navigate. And by the time they got their applications in, big businesses snatched all that money up. They did. I mean, during the pandemic, I mean, we're in the pandemic still, but so far... 41% of black businesses have gone under since the pandemic. If you're looking for the most epic place on earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. AT&T Connects and Ode to Podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. So we had this layer of protection, support for small businesses so that they could, because this shelter in place order is so tone deaf for most people. I have the type of job where I was able to just flip to Zoom and take my, you know, monitor home and take my, you know, printer home and and all of that. But most people don't have that luxury. That's right. And because of the chronic enduring impact of racism that has a both historical and contemporary uh, expression, 
we just African Americans are overrepresented in high demand, lower wage jobs. The kind of jobs that essential don't, workers. Yeah. Exactly. They're on the front line. They're on the front but line. But we never called them essential before now. No, we no, never no, called no, them essential. And we never thought of them as essential. No. And I think after the pandemic, after we tamed the pandemic, because, you know, time after time, we, we've talked during this series just to remind people that this is a virus and the virus doesn't, it's not going to go away, but we find a way to tame it, if you will, so that we can operate uh, and and I think for some people, because it's of this magnitude that we've never seen in our lifetime, a lot of people believe that this is something new, you know, and you're, you're an epidemiologist and we've been talking primarily about policy, but I think it is helpful if we can just go over one more time, Doc, if you could just explain to people, you know, I'm thinking about the movie Philadelphia where Denzel said, all right, explain this to me like I'm a two-year-old, okay? Because there's an element to this thing. I just cannot get through my thick head. If you could just explain to people in simple terms, the virus, the nature of the virus and how, you know, this is not some vast uh, conspiracy that viruses have been, are older than time. I mean, that viruses have always been here and the impact that it has on hu- humankind. Well, not only have viruses always been here, and the reason that they've always been here is because they've got built-in survival mechanisms. Viruses have built-in survival uh, mechanisms, and their only goal is to survive. And what do they need to survive? They need a host. They need a host. And the genetic survival mechanism that they have is mutation. Because they figured out, we come up with these things that make them not able to survive. So they are trying to constantly outsmart us. So they mutate, but they can only mutate in a host. So if people would have actually, if we had had a better mitigation strategy and response, and if we had just shut everything down for about two months, gave everybody a living, a livable wage. $2,000, hello, Amon. Hello, hello, somebody. Hello, if somebody. We had, if we had given everybody a livable wage, if we had, you know, given people what they needed so that legitimately the lion's share of us could have sheltered in place, we yes. could have got the spread down very, very low. Look at Canada. Look at China. Yeah. Our former president calls this the China virus. They're good. They're Gucci over in China. Yeah. We're the ones in the throes of it. And because we've been bad stewards of brilliance and opportunity and people want to do them and continue to move around and about as if we're not in the midst of a pandemic, we're now getting more mutations. Mutations are a function of spread. We get mutations in a virus. And if this is an RNA-based virus. RNA-based viruses are even more apt to mutation. A DNA-based virus, DNA generally has, and this is the five-year-old version, they got an error code kind of built in, like an error-proofing code built in. So their photocopy process, their copy process is just more tight. RNA viruses, it's not as as tight of a process. So the more we allowed this thing to spread, what we did is gave the virus a chance to out-trick us and start to mutate. And so when those mutations... Variants. Yeah. So, Doc, is the mutation another word for the variances? We hear the language variants? Yeah. So, variance is when these mutations take hold and that strain with that... A mutation is just a molecule or two on the virus changes in its replication process. Sure. That's what a mutation is. And when that mutation then 
it starts to exist more in the population because it gets spread. So I'll get it. It'll mutate in me. And then I spread it to you. If we could stop the spread between me and you, that mutation would die off. But if we allow it to keep spreading and it becomes prevalent in the population, we now call it a variant. A variant. Okay, so I know we got variants in California. We got the Brazil variants. I'm probably missing some variants. South wow. Africa, that's the one that's yes, really... South Africa. That, mm -hmm. that our, our vaccines seem to have very limited effective, effectiveness against. And speaking of the vaccine, you know, there's talk out there, and thank you for that medical... Don't y'all try this at home, okay? Yeah. <laughs> she went to law. She went to medical school. She's an epidemiologist. Don't try this at home. So, Doc, when we think about though, because you know, a lot of people, some people really uh, fall into the category of believing conspiracy theories, or more primed to believe conspiracy theories. I want to just for a minute uh, tease out that. Just a little bit for people who believe this was uh, created in a lab and somebody is just trying to, you know, they messing with us. They messing with us that this is not real and that people don't. This is Big Brother just trying to tell us what to do with the mask. So one, made in a lab, and two, are masks uh, helpful in the in the Swiss cheese example that you gave the layering? Do masks actually work to help stop the spread of COVID nineteen? Yeah, so so uh, Senator Turner, what you'll never catch me doing out in these streets is uh, pretending as if I operate in a place where goodwill is the norm. Do I personally believe that this was some conspiracy and created in a lab? I've not seen anything that would lead me to believe that. Do I believe that we live in a society where when pe people put profits over people, I don't know what our government or what scientists or what people are capable of. I don't know what Big Pharma is capable of. I haven't seen anything. And I've listened to some of the folks who put some of these theories forward. And I've listened to scientists, people who are trained as immunologists or virologists or physicians. By the way, I'm a PhD in public health. I'm a full-blown, full-fledged public health person, not a medical doctor, but I have training in infectious disease epidemiology. I was pre-med undergrad, so I understand all of the biology underneath of it. Sure. And more importantly, I understand it from a population and a community, and most importantly, a prevention perspective, okay? So yeah. whether or not this was created in a lab whether or not it was manipulated by scientists or big pharma or bad actors in the government or some secret society, it's here now. <laughs> that fact remains. So what I always tell people is if it gives, provides you something to understand all of the origins of it, then by all means, go down that rabbit hole and find whatever information you can. I've not seen anything that would lead me to believe that. So I won't I won't confirm or deny that. I'll just say sure. I have not seen anything and I've done some vetting and I've done some looking. What that shouldn't allow people to do is to let themselves off the hook for the fact that even if this was some conspiracy gone awry, it's here now. And because it's here now and it's a virus, it's going to be with us for the rest of time unless we develop some new innovation where we figure out how to destroy viruses yeah. or yeah. And we're not there yet. Yes. And we're not there yet. But then maybe if they could call that warp speed, then maybe, 
they could regain some you trust. Read my mind on that, right? <laughs> Why don't y'all do SS that with Enterprise, warp speed, right? <laughs> to keep our SS enterprise. <laughs> so for the people who believe it's a hoax, I, I'll tell you that's a hard pill to swallow. My daughter had COVID. That was real. My daughter's 19 years old, and you know, no concern. She's 19. Um, it wasn't something that we were happy about. As soon as she started having any symptoms, and her symptoms were kind of awkward. She had a terrible headache and was tired. And I was like, girl, you might get that Rona going up in that room. And she was like, mom, already doing it. Like, I'm yes. already doing it. She went and got tested. She got a rapid test. It came back negative. I said, well, baby, you just had your symptoms for two days. I know how these tests work. They will give you your best result around four or five days after you've had symptoms. So all you can do is call self-quarantine. You have to be in self-quarantine. You go get another test. If that test is negative, then we'll figure out and we'll call your uh, primary care doc and we'll figure out what's going on with you. The day she went to take her second test, she lost her sense of smell. So we were pretty right. sure right. that we were dealing with COVID, but she went ahead and got counted and took a test anyway, because you don't get counted anywhere if you don't take a test. You can have all of the symptoms, lose taste, smell, fever, chills, body aches, all that. You can't call the health department and say, I got COVID, and then they put a hatch mark somewhere in a, in a column or up on a board. You, we only can identify cases and count and track cases as a function of testing. And she's so to 19. that point, we might yeah. have more people out there. Oh, I mean, it's, it ain't a we might, 100%. Okay. The numbers that we have are a substantial gross underestimate of the actual cases in community. And a lot of people are what is called asymptomatic or low symptom carriers. Sure. They just simply don't know or they miss the symptoms, right? She just had a headache and was tired. Why, you know, think back. When COVID first came here, what we were told is it was cough, shortness of breath, fever. Nobody said anything. It's hard to even rewind your brain and go back. Nobody was talking about loss of taste and loss of smell, headache, uh, fatigue. We weren't talking about body aches, none of those things. We had a very limited symptom profile. So I even know early in the pandemic, remember D.L. Hughley? He was on a comedy yes. tour during covid and passed out on stage telling him he was asymptomatic. I'm like, no, you weren't asymptomatic. You missed the symptoms. Yeah. You are Which not sitting. Do. You're not sitting on stage and going to lose consciousness right. and didn't have fatigue and headache and some other things. What he did was he attributed it to work. Exhaustion. I'm going from show to show. Yeah. I'm just tired. Yes. I'm just this. He missed the symptoms, the mayor of Atlanta, same thing happened to her husband. Her husband's symptoms were a headache and fatigue. And because she's just mindful and a, a good steward of the trust that we've put in her, she said, we're going to go get COVID tested. She had not near a symptom and they mm -hmm. were COVID positive. Yeah. You know, so we have a lot more cases than we even know. That's why it's so important, whether or not you think it's a conspiracy or not. It's here. How it got here, I, I'll leave that for somebody else to debate, because to me, that's not the conversation worth having. And it won't serve us. It won't serve us. The thing that we can control is our individual level behavior around what we do 
to stop the spread or to accelerate the spread. And we all need to be applying pressure to the people that we give our votes to, that we give our money to, that we give our time and attention to, to use their power and their authority to do the right thing and give us some pull for all of the push that's been burdened and hoisted upon communities and grassroots leaders and people like you and people like me. You better talk about that, Doc. Well, that is it. The doctor (laughs) is in the house and she has spoken. We need some push for our pull. Hello, somebody. By people in high places that we put in those spaces. Come on, somebody. Doc, man, it's it's been been absolutely amazing to be with you. I don't quite feel like I'm I'm capable of getting that medical degree, but I I feel definitely much more wiser (laughs) knowing the variants to the mutations and uh, all of that good stuff. No, just thank you. We're so happy and so blessed to have you on the battlefield and everything that you said, but especially what is sticking with me right now is the hierarchy on the value of human life. And we got to do something about that. And people's goodwill just ain't good enough. Mm-mm. Where Hello. there's goodwill, yeah. there's a legislative way. Come on now. <laughs> Where there's goodwill, there's a legislative way. Amen yes. to that. Hello Somebody is a production of iHeartRadio and the Black Effect Network. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. So laws without enforcement are akin to guns without teeth or or gums. I'm sorry. Shit, Tina. Cut. Okay. (laughs) That'll be a good outtake. Yeah, yeah. So... AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work. In traffic, so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.